Father, there is none above you, none before you. You are the God of the universe, the God of all time. And Father, we've just praised you for your love and your grace, for saving us, and also for living with us, for being with us always. But now, I want to thank you and praise you for your word, that your word is true, it is life, and it is with us always. And as we hear it read and preached this morning, prepare our hearts Settle what has been going on in the last week, even this morning. May we have ears to hear and understand that you may encourage us and equip us and change us for your glory to serve you and you alone. Lord, we love you and uh, really bless us through your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Reading from Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 to 22. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them gold, silver, and bronze blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins, dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and on the breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out and make a gold moulding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark they are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark 
and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Then from chapter 29, 38 to 46. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil from pressed olives and a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is being made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Um, but the question we're going to start with, th- we'll start thinking about today, is how do you have a relationship with God? How do you have a relationship with God? How do you get in touch with the divine? Uh, there's lots of answers to that. I did a quick internet search and soon regretted it. Uh, a huge number of people and organisations advising people on this question, from sacred rituals involving crystals and candles to meditation to divination. It's a question humans have actually always been obsessed with. Um, it's the question behind, really, behind all human religions. What can I do to connect with God or the gods or, to put, as we put it today, the universe? Well, the world that the Bible was written into actually had the same kind of concerns and the same questions. It was a world of idols, of man-made attempts to connect with and tap into and even to manipulate spiritual beings into giving you things. Uh, What Exodus has been showing us all the way along as we've been reading through is that that, that... quest of man to reach up and connect to God, the the divine, that quest is actually utterly futile. And not only that, is a deadly thing to do. Because when it comes to the one true and living God, the God who sovereignly created and sustains all things, when he reveals himself, 
Well, it's not kind of a vague spiritual force to be tapped into or some fickle being who you might be able to manipulate if you pull the right spiritual levers. Remember this, as we looked earlier in Exodus, the one true and living God is the God of fire who reveals himself, Yahweh, the one who is who he is and who will be who he will be, the one who doesn't depend on anyone or anything else, but he himself is the source of everything. He's the God, remember right back at the start of our series, he's the God who is faithful to his promise to Abraham. He's the God who brought his people to freedom out of slavery purely because of his grace. He's the God who fought for them, who carried them on eagles' wings and drew them to himself at Mount Sinai and, as we saw last week, entered into a covenant with them. And you notice all the way along, who is it who's doing all this? Who's initiating it all? It's God, Yahweh. He's the, he's the main character of this book of Exodus. And when the people are actually confronted by a relationship with this God, they don't say, let's sit in a circle and meditate chant a bit, light some candles and bathe in this divine light, you know? Like, they don't, they don't say that. That's not what happens when they actually encounter this God. What does happen? Well, we actually read it last week. Didn't sort of focus in on it, but we did read it. Uh, at, after, at chapter 20, after God gives the Ten Commandments, it'll be up on the screen hopefully, at chapter 20, verse 18. What happened when they actually did encounter this true and living God? When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the <clears throat> sorry uh, while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So you see what's going on there they weren't to be afraid but they were to fear. That's interesting, isn't it? They, they didn't need to be worried that Yahweh was like the idols of the nations around them who were untrustworthy and fickle. He, he is utterly faithful and dependable, true to his promise. He had chosen and saved them. They didn't need to have that kind of fear, but they were still to fear him, to live in awe of his majesty and his glory in such a way that would keep them from sinning and because of that majesty, that glory, they keep at a distance. Only Moses goes up to the mountaintop, into God's presence. And remember what we looked at, we saw last week. This whole uh, thing that's happening here, Moses on the mountaintop, and then what we're looking at today and the next couple of weeks, this is actually the climax of this whole book. The, the thing that Exodus was all leading to. Not the burning bush, not the plagues, not the Red Sea, as amazing as all those things were, but this is where it's leading to, the living God entering into a relationship with his people, 
so they would find life in worshipping him. Well, how is this holy God of fire, this holy God, how is he going to be with this people to guide them and to bless them? Well, God's own answer is, uh, his answer is through a tent, (laughs) through a tent. Um, Now, we're going to think about God drawing near in a tent. We're going to spend most of our time actually on this point. So if you like to keep track on the sermon outline, uh, don't be dismayed if we spend a long time on the first point. We'll go quicker through the others. Um, But God's answer is he's going to draw near and be with them in a tent. So 25 verse 8, we had it read out. Then make, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. That word tabernacle, it's really just a fancy word for tent. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word tent? Maybe great, lovely holidays, maybe terrible holidays, uh, maybe marquees at a wedding or school sports days. Now, when the Israelites at Sinai heard the word tents, there's one thing they thought of, home, home. They were, they were living in tents they were, as they wandered around. They were wanderers in the wilderness, living in tents. And you see what's going on here. The Lord of the universe, the awesome God of glory, is saying to this people, I'm moving in. I'm moving in right into the heart of the neighbourhood. Uh, in a tent like you. Uh, and that's another passage we had read out in chapter 29. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So God's answer to how he's going to be with this people is through this tent. But it's not just any tent, is it? It's a very special tent. Uh, It's so special, in fact, that almost the entire rest of Exodus is taken up with either the instructions for this tent or the description of it being built. Um, there's this long chapters about this tabernacle, this tent. And you read through it and you think, I mean, this is the point in which your um, annual Bible reading you get to and you start to kind of think, <laughs> this is hard going as you get to these chapters. You read through and think, why all this detail? Um, it can seem pretty hard going. But I reckon it's a little bit like, um, I've never done this, but some of us here have built your own home. Now, Imagine the heady days before you knew how traumatic it would be, okay? Um, but think of the early days, going over the plans, all the details, all the finishing, all the colours. Uh, and that for you, it, I mean, it's not a boring chore, is it? You're getting everything in place so that you can live there. That's kind of what's going on here. This was getting all the details right for God to live with them. God to live with them. Now, there's a few really interesting things about this tent that I just want to kind of pull out um, and sort of we'll we'll go through. Um, 
as you read through, here's a kind of picture of what's going on. Uh, hopefully that'll give you a visual representation. We're not going to read ourselves through all the details, uh, but you can get the picture there. And what happens is as you read through these chapters, you discover that this tent is a little bit like what's going on in Mount Sinai. Um, you can't see all the details, so apologies for the resolution of that. But uh, what it, it is a little bit like kind of what's going on in Mount Sinai. What I mean by that is there's this outer court. You can see the outer courtyard there. It's kind of like the plain in front of Mount Sinai where the people could come, or the people could come into. Uh, it has an altar there for burnt offerings where people could bring sacrifices for their sin. Go to the next slide, though. You kind of zoom in on the, the, the really special tent in the middle. Uh, then you have this holy place um, inside the tent where only the priests could go. And that kind of brings to mind when Moses and the elders went up to the, onto the side of the mountain back in chapter 24. But then right at the back of the tent, you can see there, it's kind of like the peak of the mountain was the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God chose to be present in this really tangible way. Uh, so the whole kind of construction of this tabernacle is all, it's sort of like Mount Sinai on its side. Um, and th if you can see there, if you can make it out, between what's called the holy place and the most holy place, there's this curtain. There's this curtain blocking the way. Uh, it's got cherubim woven into it, not fluffy babies, um, but powerful, angelic beings of light, sort of terrifying. Um, and later on in Leviticus, we find out that only one person, the high priest, could enter into that most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. Um, at the entrance to that most holy place... Uh, right, right next to the curtain, you can see a little box there. It's called the Altar of Incense, which would fill this tabernacle with smoke. And again, that's kind of just like the smoke and cloud on top of Mount Sinai that hid the glory and presence of God. But at the heart of it all, right in the middle of the most holy place, uh, was this Ark of the Covenant, a golden box with statues of cherubim on top, and as we, we heard it read out, inside this box is the stone tablets of God's covenant um, that Moses received at the top of Sinai. So there's this sort of important flow to this whole tent that God's going to dwell in. Um, and it's all reinforced by lots of the furnishings and the architecture of the tabernacle. The outer court is dominated by bronze, the holy place by silver, the most holy place. Everything's gold when you get in there. The closer you get in, the higher you get up the mountain, the more holy it is. So it's kind of like God saying, OK, I'm with you here on this mountain. How am I going to be with you as you travel to the promised land? Uh, the tabernacle is sort of a portable Mount Sinai. But that's not all. Um, there are all these features of this tabernacle that are meant to even take our minds back even further than that. Right back to when humans could live with God in peace before sin entered the world. Right back to the Garden of Eden. Um, so that the tabernacle itself, the entrance to the tabernacle always faces east, just like the entrance to Eden was facing east. Um, the lampstand, you see a picture of it coming up next. Uh, in the tabernacle, is sort of, you can, it's shaped like a tree. 
It kind of brings to mind the tree of life in the garden. Uh, there was a, a table inside this holy place that always had bread on it uh, called the bread of presence, like this symbol of God's abundant provision and presence that uh, you had back in the garden as well. Uh, the priests had a pretty groovy outfit to wear, um, but they also had uh, these precious stones um, on their chest that they had to wear that also um, were uh, the, like the gems that you, we read of are found in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and you can read the details of that in chapter 28 of Exodus. I know we're skimming through a lot of those kind of details, but all of these things are saying what God is doing here. He's, it's like he's reclaiming a, a space in this fallen world where he can live in peace again with his people. He is drawing near. He wants to give light to his people. He wants to eat with them. It's like he's welcoming them home. So as well as sort of being a portable Mount Sinai, this is sort of a portable Eden as well. But of course, there is a massive issue, a, a, a massive problem in all of this. You know, I talked about those cherubim. They were woven into the curtain that shut off the most holy place and they were also over the top of the tabernacle. We've seen them once before now in the Bible. They've, they've only appeared once up to this point. Um, they were the guards guarding the Garden of Egypt after Adam and Eve had been expelled out, keeping them out from God's presence. They're like a sign that sin cuts us off from God, from being near to him. So you get this picture that's being built here. There's this, there's this tension that's built into it. On the one hand, the tabernacle was an unspeakable gift, an incredible gift. It cried out, God has drawn near to you. He wants to be with you right there in your midst. But it also said, beware. Watch out. Don't come too close and only approach God on his terms, not yours. See, this, this people's sin needed to be dealt with. Um, it wasn't the same as the Garden of Eden. Sin had come into the world. Their sin needed to be atoned for. Uh, atonement is something that's big in these chapters. It's all about repairing something, making amends for something. The, the people, their sin needed atoning. And the way they did that was through sacrifice, through a blameless substitute, a spotless animal whose blood would be shed in their place. Um, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's how serious sin is. And that's why the first thing you met as you entered the courtyard of this tabernacle, the first thing you sort of ran into was... Uh, an altar for burnt offerings for these sacrifices that people would make. Not only that, the priests, for the, before they even went into that holy place, they had to themselves atone for their sin and um, uh, make those offerings. Uh, and, and that time when once a year the high priest would enter into the very heart of the tabernacle, um, he too would make atonement, he would, he would take the blood of a spotless animal, a bull in, and sprinkle it onto 
the ark, actually onto the covering of the ark, which you might have picked up as we read through, is called the atonement cover, sometimes called the mercy seat, uh, which the high priest would sprinkle with blood, making atonement for the sins of the people. So and you get the picture. We are kind of doing broad brush strokes today because I think that's actually more helpful to do. Um, this tabernacle was a, a place of great promise, of incredible grace, but it was also a place of great peril, a reminder of God's holiness and of the people's sinfulness. Okay, so if you know the story, you'll know that this new nation uh, that's being formed here at Mount Sinai do eventually go into the, the land that God had promised them and yeah, become established, and then eventually under King Solomon, the, this tabernacle gets replaced by a permanent structure, by the temple, where it's doing the same kind of thing. But how do we relate to all of this? How do we relate to all of this? Um, something incredible happens as you keep going through the account of the Bible story. Um, come with me to John's Gospel got your Bibles, flick over to John. We'll have some passages up on the screen too. But John's gospel, John was one of Jesus' disciples, and he opens his gospel talking about Jesus. He's, he says, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus, the Word. Uh, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And skip down to verse 14. This word, this glorious word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, and literally that actually, you know how it says, made his dwelling among us? Literally that just, it actually says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, pitched his tent among us. It's a really, it's an intentionally, intentional use of that word by John. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Here is God drawing near in a totally new way, in a way that eclipses the old tabernacle and the, and the old temple, in the light of, God, of Christ's glory. Here is God drawing near, not in a tent, but in flesh, making his home with us fully, and permanently in the real flesh and blood person of Jesus. And you see what that means? I mean, this is mind-blowing, isn't it? Sometimes I kind of get my head out of my everyday concerns and realise just how incredible this is. If you were around in Palestine 2,000 years ago, you could have gone up and touched and talked to and eaten with and laughed with God in flesh. Even to say that is as shocking, I mean, that's, that's as shocking, it should shock us as much as someone strolling into the most holy place of the tabernacle or someone strolling up to the peak of Mount Sinai. 
Uh, You read on in John's Gospel, and the very next chapter, chapter 2, Jesus refers to himself as the temple. it's It's the same thing. That way of God dwelling with his people has come to its fulfillment, is now over. All the things the tabernacle and temple represented and pointed towards were now here in perfection and fullness in Christ. And this one who was the true temple, the true tabernacle, dealt with sin once and for all. Um, the, the blood of animals actually can never take away sin. Um, we're told that in Hebrews. And, and people, I think, a thoughtful Israelite would have really known that. Um, see, this whole sacrificial system that the tabernacle was at the heart of, it pointed towards a greater atonement. What can really wash away our sin? Well, here it is. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the true and perfect human who is also Emmanuel, God with us, his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, his blood shed on the cross saves everyone from any nation who comes to him by faith and saves them once and for all, forever. Uh, That's why as Jesus died, incidentally, you might remember that account in the Gospels, as Jesus is dying, what happens to that curtain? It's torn in two. That curtain barring the way to the most holy place. Torn in two from top to bottom. The keep out sign is torn up and thrown away. God has drawn near and has himself atoned for the sin of his people taking that penalty on himself so those covered by his blood can now be near to him. But that's not even as amazing as this all gets, friends. There's another even closer drawing near that flows out of all of this. Uh, So as Jesus dies and rises again and ascends to his Father in heaven, he sends his Spirit to everyone who has faith in him. See what's going on? Now God draws near, not only in in flesh, in the historic person of Jesus, he makes his home within us. Within us. And that means in in an incredible kind of a way that's hard to get your head around, that in a way you are a tabernacle um, if you have put your faith in Jesus. Everything that first tabernacle represented, just think how huge that was, right? All, all the holiness and seriousness with which that tabernacle, everything that that represented and pointed towards is kind of condensed and perfected in you. God has drawn near to you. Uh, Where do you see this? Well, we actually, in the New Testament, we actually saw this last year in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul talks about how important it is what we do with our bodies, especially in that section of 1 Corinthians where he's talking about sexual immorality and how important that is. And he says um, in chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your bodies are temples 
of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. But even that is not quite enough. (laughs) Because it's not just individual believers who embody this sort of tabernacle reality. The New Testament also takes it further and talks about the gathering of God's people in the church as this true temple of God. Um, So again, we are doing a bit of flicking around today, but turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul puts it like this. This whole section is about how God has taken away the dividing wall of hostility between uh, the Jewish people and the Gentiles and has created one new humanity in Christ. And he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. See the kind of building imagery? In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See what he's saying? It's not just individual Christians this is true for. It's true for the gathering of God's people in his churches. It's true for us. God draws near to his people. I wonder how you kind of feel about that at the moment. Um, Maybe God seems a bit distant to you. I want to encourage you, if that's the case, not to put your trust in your feelings, but to put your trust in God and his word. If you are a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then the holy God has atoned for your sin and is as close to you as it's possible to get. If you're not yet a Christian, that is what you can receive in Christ. It's true for you as an individual person, but and this is also how precious Christ's church is. Uh, us being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Um, it's not talking about a building, but the gathering. When Christ's people gather and serve and sing and proclaim his grace, it's, it's like we're inviting the world to come into the Holy of Holies. The, ten, the, the curtain has been torn open. We, we can, we're inviting the world into a relationship of peace and security and love with the true God and Lord of all. And friends, what Christ's church kind of embodies and puts into practice in this kind of way here and now and holds out to the world will one day become all in all uh, that's the vision of God's new creation. And you get it in place, uh, especially at the book of Revelation, the last couple of chapters especially. 
They powerfully declare that. And if you read through those last couple of chapters, you'll see there's a really interesting thing that gets said. There is no temple in this new creation. There is no temple, no tabernacle, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. See what that's saying? If the temple represented, the tabernacle represented true home, Eden, rest, relationship with God, here it is, complete, eternal, perfect. And this is the hope of, of the gospel held out to us. So there's lots, um, there's so much in this sort of broad sweep, but I just want to finish by reading out a passage from the New Testament letter of, uh, to the Hebrews. I think it ties all these things together. Um, Hebrews chapter 8 to 10 is like a long reflection on this tabernacle, this side of Jesus, and how it's fulfilled in him. I really encourage you to read that if you have the time, read through those chapters. But the, it shows how Jesus is the true and better high priest of a true and better covenant. It shows how the first tabernacle was just a shadow of a greater heavenly reality. It shows how Christ's sacrifice was once and for all uh, the reality that all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed towards. And you get to the end of that and you, it, it just sort of blows you away at what lengths God has gone to, to draw near to us, to draw near to you. To us who don't deserve it, to us who actually deserve the opposite, what love he has poured out on us in the gospel. On us who in ourselves, relying on our own righteousness, could never go anywhere near him without being burnt to a crisp by his glory and his holiness. But because of Jesus, I'm just going to finish with this, reading this out actually. This is the application for today. Because this, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. God has drawn near to us like this. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Isn't that wonderful? God has drawn near to us. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see that day, that day of fullness and perfection, and peace as you see that approaching all the more. Let's pray. How marvellous, how wonderful, how 
amazing that you have drawn near to us, our God. Uh, we confess that we do not deserve it. We deserve actually the opposite. We have sinned and turned away from you, but in your kindness and grace and mercy, you have drawn near to us. Thank you for the way you did that um, back in Exodus. Thank you for reclaiming this space of, of Eden in a sinful world. Thank you that that finds its wonderful fulfilment in Jesus and that by his spirit you have drawn near to us, by your Holy Spirit living within us, individually and together as a church. Build us up as this holy temple, we pray. Help us to continue to encourage one another with these things, to keep meeting together and urging one another on all the more as we see that great day approach. Um, when we will be with you in perfection and fullness, in peace and joy for all eternity. We long for that day, so we pray, come Lord Jesus, in his name, amen.